0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're in a series right now called The Unstuck Life. And according to the Bible, some people are stuck because they have never heard or only believe part of the gospel message. Others never learn to connect to God's power in their lives. And some people figure out the receiving part, but not the sharing. We're convinced that the path to the unstuck life is believe, connect, share and we hope that God leads you along that path as we look to the Bible together. Now, today's passage looks at how to connect the gospel to your life. The Danish story, Babette's Feast, gives a picture of this. It's set in a strict fundamentalist village in 19th century Denmark. The story revolves around two elderly sisters and a penniless refugee from France named Babette, who's seeking work as a housekeeper. The sisters can't afford to pay Babette, but they take her in when she offers to work for free. What they don't know is that she was once an accomplished chef in her native France. The sisters aren't interested in gourmet food though. They ask her to make the same meal every night, oiled fish and potatoes, explaining that Jesus commanded his followers to take no thought of food and drink. Babette longs to return to France and escape her monotonous life. And her only hope is a lottery ticket that she buys each year in the hopes of winning enough money to go home. After 14 years serving the sisters, Babette wins a lottery and she asks to prepare a special French dinner for the entire village. At first, they refuse, saying that it would be a sin to indulge in such rich food. After pleading with them, though, they relent but they secretly vow not to enjoy the feast to avoid being guilty of indulgence babette begins her preparations and before long caravans of exotic foods arrive when the day of the feast arrives the villagers gather quietly everyone manages stern faces as they eat the first course of turtle soup but they begin to talk among themselves as the meal progresses their first smiles and eventually, laughter. By the time the main course of Quail arrives, the strict, dutiful villagers are overcome with joy and praising God for their years together. Grudges are forgotten. Wrongs are forgiven. The villagers are transformed. One of the sisters goes to the kitchen to thank Babette and say how much they will all miss her when she returns to Paris. It's only then that Babette reveals that she won't be returning to France because she spent all of her prize money on the villagers feast. Now, the story can be read at a number of different levels, but it shows the power of grace and sacrifice to accomplish what rules and duty alone can't. And the fact is that many Christians never learn the lesson. They never fully come to terms with the grace of Jesus Christ. They never completely figure out how to live in response to the sacrifice he made for us. And so they eat the boiled fish and potatoes of, the Christ, of Christian duty with too little of the joy of gospel to stir their love and devotion. The Lord's Supper is a little bit like Babette's feast. It's a meal that costs the host everything, but it has the power to center us in the gospel And it's intended to help us live out of that center. I'd invite you to consider it with me this morning as we turn to Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verses 14 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read starting at Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of God. Now, the first way that the Lord's Supper centers us in the gospel is it helps us to remember gospel hope. It fixes our minds in the celebration God is preparing for us reminds us of God's promises. It helps us remember gospel hope. Now, have you thought of the fact that taking the Lord's Supper is the only thing that Jesus has commanded us to do repeatedly in remembrance of him? It's almost as if Jesus was trying to bake the gospel right into the formula for how we gather as a church. And it's important that he did because the church is so prone to veer off course. As I've mentioned in in one of this week's lessons, I've seen Christians become obsessed with supposedly biblical diets, with numerology, with church growth, end times, particular forms of worship, with homeschooling, social justice, with speaking in tongues and not speaking in tongues. But the Lord's Supper is designed to keep us from making anything other than the gospel central. Jesus calls us to reenact a meal in remembrance of him. The original meal is pictured in verse 14. Unlike in da Vinci's rendition of the Last Supper here, Jesus is reclining along with the other apostles. Reclining on one arm with your leg stretched out away from the table was the way you sat at formal banquets, and that's what this is. In verse 15, Jesus says that he earnestly desired to eat this meal with the disciples. It shows us how personal Jesus is. His relationship with his followers is deeply meaningful to him. He values community. He values fellowship. This particular meal, however, was special. Verse 15 tells us that it's the Passover. This was the great celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. If you've had the privilege of being a part of a Jewish Seder, you know that the whole meal is meticulously orchestrated to rehearse the night of their departure from Egypt. It would help them remember the night when they put the blood of a lamb on the door door frames and the angel passed over their homes. Jews have been remembering that deliverance through this meal for hundreds of years. Now Jesus institutes a new meal, celebrating a new deliverance. And he himself is the new Passover lamb. And he's at the center of the remembrance. But notice how the meal points forward. In verse 16, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In fact, he repeats almost the exact same thing in verse 18. The message is that this meal is pointing to another one in fact it says that this meal will be fulfilled in the kingdom of god meaning that it's like an appetizer but the main course will come later now the lord's supper is a little bit like when you go to a restaurant and the waiter takes your order the main meal is going to take a while to come so what do they do they bring you some drinks and they try to hold off your hunger with dinner rolls I mean, nobody goes to the restaurant because they want dinner rolls, but they're an appetizer for what's to come. And that's kind of like the Lord's Supper, because the bread and the cup are just a foretaste of a greater banquet to come, or what Revelation uh, 19, 9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Lord's Supper helps us focus our hope there. It reminds us that our hope isn't in a promotion, or a new car, or the latest iPhone, or good health. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is the celebration we'll enjoy enjoy with him in the life to come. And remember, Jesus is waiting the same way that we are. It's not as if he's gotten the party started without us. You know, friends like that, right? They're digging in the meal into their meal, whether you're stuck in traffic or not. But Jesus won't eat without us. If he earnestly desired to enjoy the Last Supper with the disciples, then you know that he's looking forward to the greater celebration to come. And we need to live with that same gospel hope. We need to see our broken bones and broken hearts in light of our eternal hope. We need to hear our children's cries and our customers' rants in light of Jesus's promises. And the Lord's Supper just keeps trying to point us there. It helps us remember gospel hope when our temptation is to forget it and become fixated on trying to find heaven on earth. But the Lord's Supper also helps us remember gospel grace. It stirs within us the joy of what Jesus has done for us. It moves us with the depth of his sacrificial love. Helps us remember gospel grace. In verse 19, part of that that grace is described in the now famous words. It says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now he's still reclining with them at the table. So it's not as if if his body is transferred into the bread, but the bread symbolizes Jesus's body. And he says, it's given for you. He uses a word here. That's often used for sacrifices. And the message is that Jesus's body is being offered up on behalf of his followers. This is what we need to feed on. This is our spiritual nourishment. This is what gives us life and strength. It's like what he said in John 6, 51. That's where he said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus himself is our nourishment. He's our life. He's our substitute. And what we need more of in our lives is him. But how Christians go strange is when they begin to focus on other things, even other good things. When Jesus stops being our primary focus, we become spiritually malnourished. When we move on from Jesus to something else, we become sick and sluggish. Jesus not only gave his life as nourishment for us, but he also gave his life as a sacrifice for us. In verse 20 it says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If Jesus was suggesting that the wine had actually become Jesus' blood in some kind of literal way, first century Jews trained in strict dietary laws would would have thrown up their hands in protest. But they don't. They understood that he was inviting them to drink the wine as a symbol of his blood. And while it's a difficult metaphor, it's an absolutely crucial one. If Jesus had just mentioned the bread, we might have focused on Jesus, but on Jesus as a great teacher or as a great healer or as a great leader. But the Lord's Supper doesn't allow us to do that. It forces us to focus on Jesus's sacrificial death for us. There's no getting around this. If we're going to make Jesus's blood central to our remembrance of him, then we have to come to terms with the fact that the most important thing Jesus ever did for us was die. His death is more important than his example. It's more important than his teaching. It's more important than his miracles. Because without Jesus's death on our behalf, we would all die in our sins. If he hadn't paid the penalty for our sins, we'd be left to pay it on our own for all eternity. Jesus is the good shepherd. And as he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, chances are, you know that already, but you may not be feeding on this reality. You're tempted to skip over the parts that talk about Jesus as sacrifice in the Bible and assume those are verses to teach non-Christians the gospel. But the Lord's Supper is specifically given to Christians to help us make the gospel central in how we see life. When you remember gospel grace and you reflect on how much Jesus sacrificed to save you, then when you lose your wallet, you don't see that as evidence that God doesn't love you. When the diagnosis doesn't go the way you had prayed, you don't think it's because Jesus just doesn't care. But the Lord's Supper does more than that. Eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus' life given for us help us to make grace central. We all have a tendency to reduce Christianity to rules and duty the way the Danish villagers did in Babette's Feast. But a meal of extravagant grace changes us. A meal that costs the host everything moves us. It helps us embrace grace beyond the duty. It helps us to see sacrifice beyond the rules. It calls us to love, It stirs us to devotion. It changes us. So we've said that the Lord's Supper helps us remember gospel hope and gospel grace. But finally, I want to show you how gospel remembrance needs to reshape everything. The gospel needs to seep into our bones and transform how we approach life. The gospel needs to become the lens through which we think about God and see our relationships. The gospel needs to become the air that we breathe and the pattern that we live by. Gospel remembrance needs to reshape everything. If you thought that the Lord's Supper is a ritual that automatically changes us, whether we think on its truths or not, then you probably haven't read the actual accounts very well. (laughs) Right after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, He addresses the person at the table who would betray him that night. But do you know where the conversation turns next? In verse 24, the disciples begin to argue among among themselves about which of them was the greatest. If the Lord's Supper is supposed to work automatically, obviously it didn't take with the apostles. Now what you see here is an example of people who have taken the Lord's Supper without really thinking much about it. They've got gospel amnesia, and that will always fuel selfish living. So let's talk very practically about what it means to walk in gospel remembrance. One of the implications is that you let the gospel be your motivation so often, Christians are motivated by guilt or fear or pressure, and they often try to motivate their children and one another with the same guilt, fear, and pressure. But in Scripture, the Gospel is always the motivation. God's grace is always the motivation. In Romans 12:1, for instance, there's this incredible charge to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a call to give everything the way Jesus did. It's a charge to live our lives in sacrifice and devotion. But notice the motivation. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He makes this appeal with a therefore. Therefore which points back to the 11 chapters of gospel truth that preceded this. He points to the mercies of God and says, in effect, as you've been thinking on all that God has done for you in Christ, this is how you can respond to him. This is how you worship. This is how you show your gratitude. And this is always the pattern in scripture. In Ephesians, you have three chapters of incredible gospel truths, And then chapter four begins with the words, "Therefore, I I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. See the therefore again? He's saying we've spent three chapters reveling in the wonders of what God has done for us. If that doesn't stir you up, I don't know what will. What I'm going to ask you now is to act like someone who believes that. Walk in a manner worthy of that. And this isn't just a New Testament thing either. In the book of Exodus, for example, in what chapter does God give the Ten Commandments? Is it chapter one? No, it's not in chapter two either. It comes in chapter 20. In fact, you have 19 chapters describing God's power in rescuing the Israelites, miraculously providing for them and sustaining them. And then in Exodus 20, God starts with this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's only then that he gives them the Ten Commandments. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. Remember how I've saved you. And only then God tells them how to respond. You let the gospel be your motivation when you approach everything that God expects of you with first a reflection on what God has done for you. But the gospel isn't just our motivation. It's the pattern for the Christian life. Colossians 2.6, for instance, says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How do you walk the Christian life? as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. How did you receive Jesus? Well, somebody told you the good news about what Jesus did, and you realized you were heading down the wrong path. You confessed out of sin, and you turned to Jesus. Then you received the power of the Holy Spirit, and you began to walk in a new direction. Paul's saying that's not just how you're supposed to start the Christian life, That's how you keep on living the Christian life. You keep growing deeper in your understanding of the good news about what Jesus did. You keep confronting the different ways that you're heading down the wrong path. You keep confessing your sin and turning to Jesus. And you keep looking to the power of the Holy Spirit to help you walk in a new direction. The Christian life is simple. Hear the gospel, respond and repeat. That's it. But most Christians don't do that. They put the gospel in the rearview mirror and they start focusing on other things, even other good things. Some, like the Danish villagers, turn to rigid rules and self denial, but without the hope or grace of the gospel to stir them. And others, without the power of the gospel, just find the commands too burdensome. And so they just lower the standard and accept compromise and sin with a mistaken hope that God doesn't care because Jesus paid it all. Neither of those responses is adequate. Purpose in your heart to make the gospel your center. Make it your hope and your motivation and your pattern. And if you've been observing Christianity from the outside and and assumed that it was mostly about rules and rituals, hear the gospel today Know that there's a Savior who offered himself for you. Know that God became man and sacrificed himself as a substitute for our sins. Know that he's prepared a feast in heaven for all who turn to him. And while we're waiting for the main course, he keeps coming to our table, serving us bread and wine, and inviting us to feed on his grace and experience his life-changing power. Receive him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible reminder that you're preparing a feast for us. You are going before us and and preparing for us what our souls have longed for. Thank you, Father, that Jesus paid with his very life, that he died for sinners and gave his life in grace as a free gift for all who would follow. May the gospel never be mundane or routine. May we feed on the nourishment that Jesus provides. May we rest In the grace that he gives. May we be driven by the hope that he provides. And may that grace, may the gospel affect how we see everything, how we view our relationships, how we see our relationship with you, how we treat others and how we motivate ourselves. do that work in our lives. For we ask you in Jesus name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see how to connect the gospel to your life. I hope it's filled you with gospel hope and gospel grace. But if it's stirred up questions or if you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus Christ, leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.